According to the International Organization of Migration, at least 650 migrants died in 2021 trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. That's almost 100 more fatalities than the previous year. Two things are happening right now. Migrants are choosing more extreme routes to avoid the patrols, and also violent drug cartels are now fully involved with human trafficking. I know people that don't go in their backyards anymore. You've got a criminal element that's always in there, and you always have to be careful of that. And that's one of the things that, that scares people off. Is this a bad guy or a good guy? You don't know. Today on the America's Now podcast, we'll talk about the risks being taken by people trying to cross the desert by foot. Hi, everyone. I'm Elaine Reyes in Washington, D.C., and this is the America's Now podcast. Today, we're talking with our correspondent in Mexico, Alistair Baverstock. He's actually currently in Arizona working on a migration story. Al, we know that you've been reporting for America's Now on migration at the U.S.-Mexico border for several years now. Tell us what you've observed in more recent months. Well, firstly, Lane, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here, and particularly when it comes to talking about migration, because obviously it's not only a hot political issue in the United States, it's something which is very much affecting Mexico and the regions which I cover for the channel. And over the past few months, we've seen migration numbers skyrocket. And one of the main reasons that I can see through my reporting on this is because of this cost of living crisis and the inflation that we're seeing. Because while in the United States, if prices have, you know, since I've started coming to the United States for CGTN a few years ago, I've seen certainly prices in the supermarket double before where uh, a box of cereal might have cost $1.50, it's now 3 to $4. So that, while it may be hitting Americans hard, the amount of disposable income that might be available to, an, to, to a U.S. citizen, imagine that, what's that, um, what that's like in Central America where you know a U.S. citizen, minimum wage worker in the United States might get $10 an hour for their work. Well, in El Salvador, for example, to pick an example entirely at random, that same worker might get $10 a day. And if those inflation rates are hitting the United States and the rest of the world, well, life is simply becoming far too expensive on the salaries that are available in these regions with very high rates of migration north. And so people are simply finding that they can no longer afford the cost of living in their countries and they therefore see, well, where do we go? We go to the source of the dollars and we go to the United States. So we're seeing that a very great number of migrants are making their way north through Mexico. And not only that, but the change of migration policy from the Trump administration in which migrants were held and detained, uh, those who are seeking migration and generally deported after weeks or months in these detention centers. The Biden administration, what they're now doing is allowing asylum seekers into the United States. And as long as they have someone who will receive them within the country, they're then being released into the country while they wait on their asylum hearings and being electronically monitored whilst within the country, either through electronic ankle tags or most commonly through an app, which is asking them to once a week 
share their GPS location with the with Homeland Security, as well as facial recognition, voice recognition to identify that these people are here. The word which is running around now in in these countries with high migration is that if you go to the states and plead and plead for asylum, you will be allowed into the country, and then. While whilst you wait for your for your court date, you will be allowed to remain and work in the United States, and during that time, earn those desperately needed dollars. So migration numbers very very high as a result of all these factors. And they're willing to take the chance. Let's talk about the three thousand kilometer border uh, that has to be crossed between Mexico and the U.S. How tough is it to cross the desert? And what would you say are the most challenging aspects? Uh, let's talk about the heat the weather conditions, the conditions on the ground when it comes to animals or even others trying to take advantage of these people trying to cross. On the one hand, you can go in and plead for asylum in the United States, but 80% of those cases under the Biden administration, according to the latest statistics, are rejected. So that means going home and that being, means being deported. So there's that, but there's then there's the route of undocumented migration. So that is essentially going with a coyote or a pollero, as they're called here, a human smuggler, and moving into the United States undocumented and evading the authorities. Now, what's happening essentially is that once you cross the Rio Grande or wherever you might be at, at the southwest border with Mexico, if you get past the border patrol there, then you have to move in further into the country. But along all the major interstate roads, there are very serious checkpoints which have much more sophisticated technology than the actual physical border with Mexico. So all buses are stopped, all the trailers are stopped, they're, they're, um, they're all checked, and most migrants who go through that route will be caught. So what people are doing, therefore, is circumventing these checkpoints. They're going around them, and they're going through very, very serious terrain in South Texas, in Arizona, in New Mexico and California, where these very, very extreme terrains, very, very serious conditions, people are simply dying as they move through these areas because it means four, five, six days walking through the desert. People don't have the right clothing. They don't have the right gear. They don't have enough provisions, water and food in order to get through. And what's happening in these places that people are quite simply falling by the wayside. And if you if you're left in these areas without a without a guide, it's very, very easy to get lost. We heard one testimony from one rancher who had a two square mile area of ranch in which he found two migrants. They were still alive after three days, but what had happened is they had come up unguided to his fence and he had a two square mile fence around his ranch. They had crossed the fence and then attempted to continue moving north or what they thought was north. And they were walking for two days, two, three days, because what essentially happens is they had entirely lost their bearings and they had spent two days walking in a circle within a two square mile area without ever seeing another piece of fence. So it's extremely easy to get lost in these areas without a guide and a lot of people are dying. And they obviously think that it's worth the risk to take that more perilous path. They certainly do. But another key factor here is that because these people are coming from Central America and Mexico and further south in South America, 
the only reference they have from people about the severity and the extremity of these regions are the same human traffickers who are selling their services. And an important line from these human traffickers is, yes, it's extreme, but don't worry, you can make it. And that's quite simply not true. You recently reported for America's Now that drug cartels are controlling some of these migrant routes. You've interviewed Mexican citizens who claim that is the case. So is that a well-known fact or does the Mexican government even acknowledge that to be true? So how exactly are the cartels involved with migration? The cartels and Mexican organized crime are almost entirely dominant in the black market industry and the clandestine industry of human trafficking and human smuggling, precisely because of the profits, which are so absolutely enormous. It's one which was estimated most recently as at a $15 billion industry a year. And when we've been in Honduras and El Salvador for the channel, we've had migrants talking to us about the prices from which, from the capital of Honduras, Tegucigalpa, to for the, the premium service to be trafficked through to San Antonio, Texas, that costs $14,000 for a single migrant. And if you multiply that by obviously the thousands and thousands of migrants who are moving through Mexico, either guided or on their own, uh, who are extorted along the way, well, the profits are absolutely enormous and the cartels and organized crime are involved from start to finish. So it's something which these days is, is absolutely controlled by Mexican organized crime. There's two ways of migrating. There's one guided in which we saw recently where we saw the tragedy of the San Antonio migrant trailer tragedy in which over 50 migrants died inside a trailer. That's one way of moving. Those people were being, had, had prepaid human smugglers to be put inside a truck and moved into Texas and into the United States. What happened exactly there with the truck being abandoned, we don't know and we probably never will, but that was one way of doing it. But the other, the other way the migrants do it is quite simply getting a backpack and migrating of their own accord from Central America across Mexico and into the United States. And that's on foot, on buses, how, hitching rides, however they can get in. But those same migrants are extorted at every step of the way. And even for those migrants who want, who are arriving in towns at the Mexico-US border, such as Reynosa, uh, Nuevo Laredo, Matamoros, in, for a migrant to enter these towns, they must, when they arrive on the bus, when they disembark the bus, there will be someone from organized crime waiting for them to, to see who these migrants are, to see who's arriving in town. And if these migrants on their way arriving in town don't have the specific passcode or the specific word or, or, or pass key which allow which identifies them as as having paid to the, the rights to the to organized crime to enter the town from further south in Mexico, those migrants do not make it to the migrant refuge camp. They are kidnapped there on the spot and from there a process of right, you're now kidnapped, give us the contact details of your family members in the United States or your family members in Honduras, we will pass that, we will, we will call them, we will pass them bank details. And if no money is appearing, well, who knows what will happen to you? A lot of migrants disappear on the, on, on the migrant route as well. So it's absolutely 
controlled by organized crime these days. I want to get your thoughts on something. Um, this is Don White with the Brooks County Sheriff's Office. There was one point last year uh, at night, and they did an infrared scan of the entire county, and they had uh, in excess of 300 at that point moving through the county. We were just listening to Don White from the Brooks County Sheriff's Office. In 2021, the bodies of 119 migrants were found in the deserts of this county in Texas. Most of them died, presumably, because of the heat. So, Alistair, when this happens, what is the protocol to send the bodies back to their countries? And are there any kinds of international agreements that guarantee any kind of compensation? Who answers for these deaths? Well, before we go into exactly what the protocols are when a body is found, it's important to mention that while over 100 bodies were found in the deserts of Brooks County in 2021, that number really doesn't represent the number of people who have died in this region. And, and that's precisely because of the very extreme conditions in these areas. A body, a dead body, which is left or, or someone who dies in these deserts, that body will only remain in that area as a recognizable human body for about seven days. Because if someone dies in these deserts, what essentially happens is that first, the wild animals in their area, bobcats, mountain lions, coyotes, will strip the body and eat what's left of it. Eat, the, they'll tear the muscle from the bone, and then what's happened is the bones will be consumed by the wild pigs and the wild boars which live in that area. So if a body is left and unfound for more than a week in these areas, it quite simply disappears. All that will be left will be a shred of clothing or a cap, which these migrants take with them. So 100 bodies actually found in these deserts. That means that the, the authorities found them within seven days of that person's death. So far, far more are never found. And when it comes to protocols of recovering these bodies and returning them and repatriating them, bodies are very, very hard to identify. They're having to go on dental records, which migrants often don't have. And so if there comes to international treaties about the return of bodies of migrants who have entered the country undocumented in this way, they quite simply don't exist. And that just isn't something that we hear about hardly at all. I, I did not have any idea about any of that. Alistair, what kind of pressures do border agents face with this migration crisis? You, you touched on them earlier, but on both the U.S. and Mexican sides, uh, you recently reported that getting into Mexico isn't the problem. It's getting from Mexico into the U.S. Border agents obviously work with the government, but do they ever work with cartels? I mean, is there any kind of under-the-table agreements? I think that would be very hard to, to, to say yes to. Obviously, through my reporting, I've spoken to a lot of Border Patrol agents, through uh, even to the unions, to Homeland Security. And if it comes to any allegations of corruption, I've, I've, I certainly haven't heard anything to, which would substantiate that either on or off the record. And everyone, anyone who, who spends any time talking to the Border Patrol guys, these guys are honest, decent guys who work what is a very, very difficult job. And, and, and it's certainly not easy, on the one hand, patrolling these areas, picking up migrants, but on the other hand, thinking that their, their adversaries more and more are the Mexican cartels, are Mexican organized crime. And having to do that job un, under what are increasingly difficult circumstances, I think is, uh, is, is a job which is becoming increasingly difficult. So how do you see this crisis playing out and what needs to be done to really get at the root causes when there are 
other countries involved. It's not just Mexico. And you have to limit the dangers for migrants. How can the various governments play a more active role when we've seen in the past year that they're not really even willing to meet and talk about it? Well, I think migration is such a divisive political issue in the United States and something which um, U.S. voters have such strong opinions on. The political discourse is so detached from the reality of the, not only America's requirement for legal, regulated and labor, which is coming from Latin America, which a lot of these migrants come into the country to do. There's a huge demand for labor and for these migrants when it comes to their entry into the United States. But the political discourse around it is the thing I think which most of all needs to change. But because it inspires voters and gets people out to the polling stations to vote either blue or red in the United States over this political issue, it's something which the lawmakers and the policymakers in Washington need to think, right, look at this situation. People are dying in the desert, but at the same time, we need the labor. We need to find a way to regulate these people, get them into the country on working visas, and then give them the opportunity to get back out of the country and take the dollars which they've earned to improve to improve their lives in their home countries. And that way, get move that US dollar economy, which is in so many ways, the unofficial currency of Latin America more and more because of remittances and 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 and, and the dependence of, of Latino economies on dollars in order to change that policy for the better. If they truly understood what the terrain was like in Brook County, they wouldn't make the trip. And we'll leave it there. Alistair Baverstock, thank you so much for being with us on the America's Now podcast. My pleasure. The executive producer of the America's Now podcast is Jose Velasquez. Our audio editor is A.J. Moore. Joe Zarenko is our copy editor. Umberto Duran is the head of the Features Unit. And I am your host, Elaine Reyes. Until next time. <laughs>